Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 791 with Ron Carucci. Ron is back. We are talking about how to build trust and be honest and how you might not be as honest as you think you are. So you'll learn, one, why people don't trust you, even if you think you're trustworthy. Two, some fundamental questions to up your leadership. And three, a powerful exercise to build your honesty bustle. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we referenced, please pay us a visit at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP791. Now here's Ron's story. Ron has a 30-year track record helping executives tackle challenges of strategy, organization, and leadership from startups to Fortune 10s, nonprofits to heads of state, turnarounds to new markets and strategies, overhauling leadership and culture to redesigning for growth. With experience in more than 25 countries on four continents, he helps organizations articulate strategies that lead to accelerated growth and then designs programs to execute those strategies. He's the best-selling author of eight books, including the Amazon number one, Rising to Power, and has recently released, to be honest, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose. Ron is a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review, where Navalent's work on leadership was named one of 2016's management ideas that mattered most. He's also a regular contributor to Forbes and a two-time TEDx speaker. Big thanks to Ron for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Ron. Ron, welcome back to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Pete, so great to be back with you. I've missed you, my friend. Well, I'm excited to dig into your wisdom. To be honest, lead with the power of truth, justice, and purpose is the latest book. Uh, Last time, we touched on your antique doorknob collection, so I think we need to revisit this. First, could you... (laughs) I could behold it, though the listeners can't see it. It's it's bigger than I thought it was. (laughs) So maybe for those who didn't hear you the first time, can you refresh listeners on what that's about and tell us if there's any uh, new developments? So I began making these jars years ago for other people. And basically, there were people in my life who I felt were amazing at opening doors for people and helping people move over the threshold or the the liminal space of a doorway. And so, you know, these are doorknobs that are dozens or hundreds of years old. There's old hardware in there. There's old hinges. There's knockers. So all kinds of things to do with doors that span, you know, hundreds of years. And if you think about the, the countless number of hands that have turned those doors open, that have passed through those doorways, for me, it's a wonderful daily reminder that that's what we're here for. Mm-hmm. We're here to make a way for other people. I tell people in my talks all the time, 
There are 7.2 billion doors in the world through which love, hope, and joy can pass. You're one of them. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, thank you. Well, now let's dig into, to be honest, uh, what's perhaps one of the most striking, counterintuitive, surprising, fascinating discoveries you've made while putting this together? So uh, it's based on a 15-year longitudinal study of more than 3,200 leaders. So we dug in deep and we learned a lot. Some of it was very surprising. The most exciting part was that you can actually predict what, mm. what conditions in which people will tell the truth and behave fairly and serve a greater good and under what conditions they might be more prone to lie, cheat, and serve their own interests first. One of the biggest findings is that honesty is not a character trait. It's not some moral imperative. It's not some sense of do good. Honesty is a muscle. It is a capability. It is something if you want to be good at, you actually have to work at it. Like Just like going to the gym and building any other muscle, if you want your moral competence, your honesty competence to be effective, it isn't something you can just assume that your, your good intentions will take care of. Hmm. Okay. In today's world, we're in a trust recession. Hmm. And if you want to earn and keep the trust of others, you have to work at it. You have to earn it every day. So it turns out earning and keeping the trust of others has far less to do with your good intentions mm. of being trustworthy and far more to do with your working at your honesty muscle to ensure you're giving people evidence and reasons to trust you. Whenever I ask leaders the question, do your people trust you? The reflexive response is almost always, well, why wouldn't they trust me? <laughs> as, as though my good, good-hearted intentions to be trustworthy are enough. But the reality is in today's world, where cynicism reigns supreme. We look around in every institution there is and see trust in a freefall. Today, leaders begin in a deficit of trust. They don't be, you know, you can go from being somebody's peer and trusted and just being elevated to being their boss. You are the same person, and yet in their eye, that you now have power, that you now have disproportionate levels of influence over their future, that you're not one of them, starts you in the red. And you have to re-earn the trust you had as their peer. And most leaders just take that for granted. Intriguing. Well, Ron, I don't want to get too much into this semantic wordplay game, but it's funny when you say honest, I think most of us would consider ourselves honest. And I assume that folks are being honest with me. And yet there is something of a gap in terms of whether I trust someone. I guess there's, there's levels and layers to it. Whereas I tend to think, well, I generally presume the vast majority of people aren't straight up lying to me and telling me the opposite of what is true. And is that fair in terms of like the state of honesty in the workplace today? Oh, would that it were that simple, my friend. But here's a couple of problems. I think we're in a world today where we have confused speaking the truth with speaking your truth. Okay. And so I may tell you something that I firmly believe. And because I say it with conviction, it is, it is my truth, but I'm going to say it as if it's the truth. I may be, be repeating heresy to you that I read okay. on the internet somewhere, <laughs> but if I believe it, I'm going to pass it on as if it's so. Internetheresies.com. Secondly, what we learned in, um, so we, in our both neuroscience, uh, we did a lot of brain science to understand how our brain processes the, our experience of honesty. And also in the the, the initial research of our, our interviews, we use a lot of really cool AI technology to do some of the word taxonomy and analysis. Honesty today is more than just not lying. So the definition of honesty, as the book title says, is truth, justice, and purpose. What that means is to be labeled as honest, you not only have to say the right thing, you have to do the right thing, and you have to say and do the right thing for the right reason. 
Okay. You may do less than that, and you might be labeled a good person, or you might be labeled reliable. But if you want to earn and keep the trust of others, all three are necessary today. Okay. Understood. So, and that's intriguing how I'm thinking about, yeah, your truth versus the truth. Quite a distinction. I've seen people say things with conviction. If something comes about, we're at a party and someone was saying, it's not possible for media companies to be profitable, you know, just by the sale of ads. They have to engage in some other activities. He said this with great conviction. And I thought, well, I own a profitable media company. <laughs> and so he said it, he meant it, he believed it. He wasn't trying to deceive anyone. And yet I know that the statement he made was false. And in so doing, I did. I, I had less trust in subsequent statements he made. And, and, and I guess I, uh, I guess I could be a stickler. But here's the problem, Pete. Yeah. The fact that he believed it to be true yeah. doesn't make it true. That's true. I mean, <laughs> what you say is correct. <laughs> but he would proffer it as if it were truth. And mm -hmm. were you to disagree with him, he would say, you're wrong. Well, it's funny, I did. I actually, it is interesting, like my reaction, I, I was a little angry at him for having said that, even though he had no, he had no poor intentions. And, and I guess it's just sort of like my, I guess the way I operate is if I'm uncertain of something, I will put my cards on the table. Like I would have given him a lot of grace if he said, boy, you know what? When I was working for this media company, there's no way we could have been profitable with paying the, the writers and all the stuff with, with, I mean, look at the bandwidth fees, given the small revenue we have so thusly, but I don't know how it's possible for any, you know, it's, okay. So, I mean, that's all right. You, so we're conveying similar sentiments and yet I was like, sure. all right, fair enough, dude, that's your experience. I understand that's where you're coming from. And I got a different perspective to share with you. And would you not have been more drawn to want to trust him more and engage him because he was being thoughtful? Absolutely. Right? So there you are. Yeah. That is a wonderful example of today in our dogma proliferated world, we lose trust by with chronic certainty. Yeah. When we confuse our truth with the truth. Chronic certainty. Hmm. Well said. And I'm thinking about another time someone was doing a, a very clever book promotion in which I could get a free copy of a book if I just paid the shipping charge. <laughs> you see it coming. And then there was like an upsell video in which he said, hey, can I send you some more training? And I was like, okay, maybe. And he's like, well, right here in the same box, I could give you my, it was a CD set at, at the time for extra $200 or whatever. And so I thought that was a very clever move because he already had my credit card. Uh, I was already intrigued in the topic because, you know, I got the email and I said, sure, I want your free book. And then I was like, okay, clever move. All right, sure. And then I remember they were not in the same box because I thought it was going to be, and it was not a pre-release copy of the book, which I thought it was going to be. It was piped through barnesandnoble.com. And then the, the training CDs actually came separately earlier. And it was, it's interesting because it's like, and in that instance, I was more angry. Because it's like, okay, you're not just mistaken. It's like you knew darn well, even though I still got the book for the cost of shipping and I still got the trainings. It's like, you knew they weren't going to be in the same box. This is part of your marketing strategy from day one to, yep. to goose you and, and have one week on the New York Times bestseller list as you piped all these orders through uh, these places. And so, well, now I, I trust nothing this person says. Right. Yeah. So your examples are crystal clear. Pete, but those kinds of transactions happen to us all day long. And so my scrutiny of 
you and your scrutiny of those people and people who are like them, because our brains process those experiences like little traumas, right? So they imprint distrust in our brains. And so anytime now anybody reminds you of the media guy or the <laughs> book author, the author guy, yeah. you're going to hold that screen up and, and go, first of all, is it like them or not? And how much like them is it? So now you have a new bar, right? Of what somebody now has to get past to earn your trust. Well, multiply that by hundreds of transactions every day that can go either in either direction. And you see what it takes today for leaders to actually authentically show up in a way that does attract and keep because the marketing guy had your trust for 20 minutes you did, and then squandered it. He exploited it and squandered it. That's true. And leaders do that every day with good intentions. They don't realize the things that which people you know, will withdraw their trust from you from. I, I had to give a client of mine feedback that he, he had lost his team's trust because he got, he got very defensive saying, I, I, I'm straight with them. I, I tell them what the way things are. I go to bat for them. I, I, you know, I advocate for resources for them. I tell them what, when they're not working well, I tell them when they're great. I said, so you've just li listed off for me all the reasons you believe you've earned their trust, <laughs> but trust is a currency. Right, we all trade in different currencies. You're, you believe they're trading in your currency when actually they're not. So it turns out that when you're in meetings with your team, you tend to be a little bit impatient, and you tend to let that be known through some sarcastic remarks. And when someone is going on a little bit longer than you wish they would, you cut them off. He said, "Well, okay, everybody has a bad day." I said, "Well, apparently you have a lot of them." And what you are telling people in those behaviors is you are not safe for them to be imperfect. That if their thoughts are not fully formed, if their arguments don't align with yours, they shouldn't speak. That's what you've told them with those behaviors. That loses their trust. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter that you never intended for them to interpret those things that way. That's what your behavior conveyed. And he was flawed. And this is not a jerk. Right? This is a good guy, a smart guy, a good leader. But here was a set of behaviors that, that he would have never equated with trustworthiness. But there you are, his team deciding that he was not a safe place, was not trustworthy of their candor, of their ideas, of their imperfectly formed mm -hmm. views. Yeah, that's a good notion. So, so to trust someone or for someone to be trustworthy, it's not just, I don't think that you're lying to me, but rather I can trust you with my incomplete idea. I can trust you with a proposal which uh, may or may not work. <laughs> so I get that. The use of the word trust in terms of what do you trust people with or what do you entrust mm -hmm. to them can be minimal or maximal. And thusly, the term currency really plays out nicely. Would I trust you with a few pennies or would I trust you with my life savings? And But rather than talking about monetary matters, we're talking about emotional, intellectual contribution matters. And, you know, I mean, some people hold up the yardstick of, of character. You know, I'm going to judge you by your character to decide whether or not I want to trust you. Some people use competence. If I think you're not good at your job, if I, if I don't think you're awesome at your job, I may trust you less. It may be your personality. You may have a different kind of personality than me. And I find you know, if I'm an introvert and you're a charismatic, whatever, I may trust you less. 
But if you're like me, I may trust you more. There's all kinds of currencies we trade in. The key is to know what currency the people whose trust you want are trading in, not to assume that they're trading in yours. Right. Because you may squander a great deal of effort trying to earn trust you're not earning. And I also think that it can be it can be quite uh, segmented in terms of like when you start talking about marketing ideas, I don't trust you because I think they're kind of nutty. Right. But when you start talking about, you know, financial accounting health things, like okay, you're all, you're solid, you're all over that. So, all right. Well, please Ron, unpack this for us. If we want to be maximally trustworthy, what's our path? There's four doors to go through using our door metaphor. So we found four conditions under which you can guarantee whether or not people will earn your trust. These were the conditions we found both in individuals and organizations that, and there's actual statistical factors that go with each. So the first one is be who you say you are. Our organizations make promises in their statements, missions, values, visions, purpose statements. Yeah. Turns out those matter to people in terms of whether they're embodied or not. Yes. And if you work in an organization where those things are for cosmetic purposes only, but if you ask people, is this your experience of the place? Those are not the words they would use to describe it. You're now three times more likely to have people be dishonest. Do you have to be dishonest? Yep. Okay. But if they are, if there is an alignment between the actions and words, and if, if your organization does embody those words, now you're three times more likely to have people be honest. Yeah. The reason that you raise the risk of dishonesty is you've now institutionalized duplicity. You've now told people <laughs> around here, we say one thing and do another. <laughs> and so that's okay. So your people will now go, okay, so I'm allowed to say one thing and do another. <laughs> oh, Ron, this is hard hitting. <laughs> Same with leaders. If you're a leader, you have advertised what you value. You may not have done it intentionally. You should have. And so people will look at you. And if you are embodying who you say you are, they're three times more likely to give you their trust and see you as honest. But if if your say-do gap is more than one-to-one, you are telling people you're not trustworthy. Ooh. Second was accountability. So if, you're, if the way in which you account people's work, how you talk about their contributions, how you measure their contributions is seen as fair and just and dignified, meaning I feel when I walk out of my conversations with my boss that however my work was discussed, including my shortfalls, was dignifying and fair, meaning I have as much of a chance of being successful as anybody else. You're four times more likely to have people be honest. But if I think the game is rigged, if I think I'm being demeaned or a cog in your wheel or a means to your end, or I don't have as much of a chance of being successful as other of your favorites, now you're four times more likely to have me be dishonest because now for me to get ahead, I have to embellish my accomplishments and hide my mistakes from you. And when you say be honest or be dishonest, again, we're not talking about stating things that are the opposite of the truth, but rather shades, nuances, withholding, embellishing. Any form of truth, justice, and purpose. Any form of saying the right thing, doing the right thing, or saying and doing the right thing for the right reason. It's any misuse of those three things. Okay. The third was decision-making. So if I walk into a room in an organization virtual or otherwise, commonly referred to as a meeting. Mm -hmm. And I believe what's happening in that room to be an honest conversation, that the person who's presenting something is giving me the full scoop on what data they're presenting. They're giving me both sides of an argument. I believe they don't have some hidden agenda. 
And I believe that were I to offer a view that's different than the countering prevailing views in the room, I'd be welcome to do that. Now you're three and a half times more likely to have me be honest because I, I can trust what's in the room. But if I walk into that room and I think it's nothing but orchestrated theater and the person presenting the data has spun it, has an agenda of what they want, is clearly guiding the room toward that outcome. And the last thing you want to hear from me is a point of view different than the one that you're trying to shape. Now you're three and a half times more likely to have me be dishonest because the truth is now underground. And if I want the truth, I have to go, go, go get it somewhere else. And here, be dishonest might mean just keeping your mouth shut. Keep your mouth shut. Mm. Go outside the room and collude with somebody about... Can you believe that BS? <laughs> and so here's what we're going to do now. Uh, okay. And the last one was probably one of the most surprising, was the most surprising, was cross-functional relationships. What happens at the seams of your organization? If you have prevailing border wars, the classic sales and marketing, supply chain and operations, R&D and innovation, HR and everybody. Mm-hmm. If those seams are not stitched well, and there's no way for those conflicts to be, which are usually healthy tensions, to be resolved, you are six times more likely to have people be dishonest. Because when you fragment the organization, you fragment the truth. Now all we have is dueling truths. My truth versus your truth. My only interest now is being right, and which means I have to go about proving you wrong. Mm-hmm. But if those seams are stitched, if, those, if there's cohesion and coalescence across the organizational story, if people recognize that there's value we create together that's bigger than either one of us, and there's a way for those tensions to be held in a healthy way to resolve those conflicts, now you're six times more likely to have people be honest with you because now we're all part of a bigger story. Mm-hmm. The sobering aspect of those four findings, Pete, is that the models, the, the statistical models are cumulative. So if you're good at all four of those things, you're 16 times more likely to have people in your organization or in your presence be honest with you. But if you suck at all four of those things, you are now 16 times more likely to find yourself on the front page of the New York Times in a story you never imagined being in. Okay. Ron, there's a lot of goodies here. I think the one that really hit home powerfully was at the beginning. We talked about institutionalizing dishonesty. And, you know, I could think of my first workplace was Kmart. And I remember we had these principles and I thought to myself, oh, what a relief. (laughs) I'm so naive. I thought, oh, what a relief. I am like 17 years old. Don't really know what I'm doing. First sort of job. It's not a paper route. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure there's going to be all sorts of ambiguous, tenuous things, but I can look to these principles as my guiding light uh, in the midst (laughs) of this ambiguity. I I think I still remember the customers rule, teams work, change strengthens, diversity enriches, performance drives. It's over 20 years ago. And, and so, but, and yet when I saw at our store in particular, not to throw shade on Kmart worldwide, uh, when I saw these being violated, I was like, oh, I guess, I guess not really. <laughs> okay. Cause I love the idea. Okay. Customers rule. And I, I had the power to please. I was told in my training video, like if they're, if they don't have the sale 24 pack of Pepsi in stock, I could give them two 12 packs for the sale 24 pack price. I thought that was pretty cool. It's like, Ooh, it's a thing I can do. I have, I've got some power here. And that was one of my favorite things to do is write up the magic ticket, which said, Hey, this is, this is your new price for this thing. But then when, when they said, oh, oh, don't do that for these, 
It's like like she's got some sort of Pepsi dealer that got a special prize. <laughs> Don't do that for for these things or these exceptions. And they really added up. And and you're right, institutionalizing dishonesty. I was like, oh, okay. I guess we just kind of do whatever's expedient. <laughs> I guess that's how things really work here. And that wasn't a great feeling, and it made me uneasy in terms of never quite knowing if if things were were right or, or appropriate, and us just starting and doing whatever got the job done without flagrantly, I guess, violating the law <laughs> or causing risk to someone's health and safety. But then elsewhere, I'm thinking about Bain, like where we had our operating principles and they were they were real. Yeah. That was inspiring. And I was like, oh, this is what we do here. It's like, we're open to the 1% possibility, which is that you're wrong. And, and that's okay. It's okay for lowly associate consultant to challenge a stately partner and they won't rip my head off. Uh, that's pretty cool. That's really how it works here. Yeah. So yeah, the notion of institutionalizing dishonesty is a, a powerful phrase and really does ring true experientially. When duplicity becomes a welcome norm, I mean, what, the offense of the hypocrisy causes what we now know to be moral injury, right? So it's not just exhaustion. It's not just even burnout from the constant duplicity, we now know we can measure it through neuroscience that it's actually what we call moral injury. Moral injury was first measured in people who were at war, people, you know, veterans and experienced and observed or were part of atrocities. And then we, throughout the pandemic, we realized, oh, healthcare, lots of moral injury there. It is actually an imprinted trauma response, similar to PTSD, but not the same. But when you're in an environment of rampant hypocrisy, and the, the enraged part of you that can't that feels trapped that feels that feels complicit right is actually imprinting like a trauma response it's called moral injury it's people that people call have often misdiagnosed burnout or exhaustion for what really is moral injury and so a rampant environment of saying one thing and doing another means that i will get my pound of flesh so if if you're going to be a hypocrite watch what i can do mm-hmm. and so i'll start giving those price tags Mm-hmm. Two for one, three for one, four for one. When my mother comes in, it's going to be 10 for one. <laughs> All right. That's good. Well, so this is really intriguing that these environmental cues have tremendous power in shaping the behavior of, of folks. So let's say that our, our listener is not at the top of the organization, but you know, somewhere in the middle and they are inspired. They, they want to be as honest as possible and and shape some some good cultural vibes uh, within their spheres of influence. What are some immediate actions folks can take? That's a great question, and I will shamelessly plug the book because I, I left no stone unturned. Every chapter ends with a long, luxurious list of practical things we can all do right away. But for example, let's talk about this duplicity thing. Next time you're together with your team, pull those things off the wall. <laughs> Pick your favorite set of promises, the values, the principles, the mission, the, the purpose statement. Pick one. Put it on the table and ask your team, how are we doing with this? Does it, is this what your experience is? Maybe the rest of the place isn't. But I want to make sure that the experience I'm creating for us sounds like this. Where, where could we do better? Mm-hmm. If somebody followed our team around with a video camera all day long... <laughs> Could that videotape be used as a training program for these values? Or would it be like, a, here's how not to do this? Just open the conversation, right? Just 
any one of these, you know, is, is an invitation to a conversation. So when we found the, finished the research and found the findings, I thought, I don't want to tell the failure stories. Um, we're all a little bit sick of Theranos. We're all a little bit sick of Wells Fargo. We don't need to rehash those painful moments anymore. I want, the, I want to know who the heroes are. I want to tell the stories of people who are doing this and living this out in a way I'd be proud to emulate. I'd want them as my boss. And so the book is nothing but a book of great heroic stories of people who are beautifully and inspiringly embodying these four findings in a way that we can easily emulate. We can easily take a book out of their playbook that they've lit the path for us. And so the border war one, the cross-functional things, if I ask you, who is your they? Mm. Who's the person in some other department who your, your team has to coordinate with? When you think of them, you think, oh, here they come. Yeah. What do they want? And you've othered them. You've made them other. They're the enemy. And they make your life miserable. And all you do is talk about how incompetent they are. Turns out, not as surprisingly, you're probably their they too. And they're having the same conversations about your team, which of course you think are unjustified and your team is just, you know, angelic and does everything right and couldn't imagine making their life miserable. What if you just reach out to that leader and said, hey, let's have coffee. And said to them, look, we know our teams are struggling to get along. How can I be a better colleague to you? What could we do differently? How can we create that? What, what could, how can, what's one thing we can do to make this better? And anytime I bring teams together to do what we call seam startups to sort of re- regenerate a seam, inevitably, as you begin to talk about what value they co-create together that they don't create on their own, and begin to talk about how they do that or how they struggle, you start hearing a crescendo of, oh, that's why you do that? Oh, that's why that drives you crazy. I didn't know you needed that. Wait, that's what you guys do? That's your KPIs? Oh my gosh, we're measuring them just the opposite. No wonder I can't stand you. You just, people discover and rehumanize the other from being the them to now it's a part of a bigger we. Mm-hmm. And suddenly things change. So all of us can initiate any one of these things to be better. There are organizational injustices all around you in your accountability systems, in your budgeting systems, in your resource systems. Somebody is getting a shirt out of a stick. Somebody is not valued the way they should. Just ask yourself, who are the roles in your organization that are privileged? If you're a tech company, are your engineers privileged? If you're in a brand company, are your marketers privileged? If you're in a growth company, are your salespeople privileged? And it's not that all work is created equal. All work is not equal. Some work is more important than others, but not all people uh, should be more important than others. And mm-hmm. if those privileges in those jobs are disadvantaging other people, that means those privileges are a problem and the, and the playing field is not level. And you have the power to right those wrongs. Somehow, some way, who's the bully in your organization that your team has to put up with? Do you turn a blind eye? Okay, Ron, so fundamentally... How do leaders earn and sustain their team's trust? If you're a leader, let me simplify your job. Your people come to work every single day with two foundational questions they want to answer. Do I matter and do I belong? Is my contribution important? Is it valued by you? And can I show up as who I am? Or do I have to hide part of myself? Your job is to make sure that every day they never wonder that the answer to those questions is yes. Because any time they spend doubting whether or not the answer is yes, is capacity they're investing in hiding, in performing, in manipulating, in resenting, 
And that's not capacity they're putting into producing the results you need them to produce. So take it off the table for them. Make sure there is not a shred of doubt in how you care for them and how you lead them and how you guide them and how you coach them, that they never wonder that they matter and that they belong so that the rest of their capacity can be devoted to performing. Yeah, understood. Okay. Well, now I'm wondering about, you know, the shooting the messenger effect. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's real and it really does make things difficult. And and I guess we sort of talked about these four, you know, environmental organizational factors at work here with regard to contributing to or detracting from psychological safety. Uh, But if we got bad news and we're in an environment that isn't so welcoming of it, how do we even play that game? So let's talk about both sides of the equation here. Here's a blanket statement that I can confidently say as my truth is the truth. (laughs) If you are a leader and you don't have somebody coming into your office at least twice a week, telling you something that makes you uncomfortable, you can be 100% confident your leadership sucks. All right. That's, I mean, because, and if you think it's because there isn't anything to tell you that makes you uncomfortable, not only does your leadership suck, you're stupid, but those stories are being told somewhere. And if they're not telling you, you have to be curious about who they're telling. You can be very confident that every night at the dinner table of the people you lead, you are being talked about. You are the subject of a story. If you don't know what stories they're telling about you, you should want to get in on the conversation. Okay. Let's talk about the other side of the equation. Today, telling the truth has has reduced itself to, if if I just adopt the posture of a big middle finger or a whiner or a ranter on social media, that's the equivalent of speaking my truth or being in the messenger. You have to deliver the message competently. You can't just come in ranting or whining mm-hmm. or complaining or accusing or passive aggressively throwing somebody under the bus. You need to show up with the credibility to say, hey, I have a concern. Here's what it is. Here's my suggestion for how to resolve it. And if you haven't earned the credibility to do that before that moment, that moment is probably not the moment to do it in. Mm-hmm. What we know about competent courage, Jim, Jim Dieter's research, um, if you haven't had him on your podcast, you want to get him. He's, he's wrote the book, um, Choosing Courage. Um, okay. And his research shows that the people who do this well are people whose credibility is already established. And, and there are things they do competently to bring in the bad news, to establish what to do about it, and to be heard. Doesn't mean people won't bristle or get defensive. Um, but there, there is a skill to it. I, I actually was told uh, last week on social media, I'm still sort of wrestling with this, but someone said, Ron is so good at what he does. He's the only person I know that can tell someone to go to hell and they'll ask for directions. <laughs> and I'm thinking, it sounds like that was intended to be a good thing or a compliment. I, I, I'm, I'm not so sure, but I do work very hard to make sure that when I have to bring somebody uncomfortable news or disconfirming news about how they see the world, that's already going to make them uncomfortable, that at least I do it with care. Mm-hmm. I don't pull punches. I don't soft pedal it. But I do it in a way that they know I'm not judging them. I'm not trying to make them, to shame them. And I will help them through this. But withholding bad news from somebody is never kind. Leaders do it all the time when they withhold hard feedback from people. I don't want to hurt their feelings. It was just a one-off thing. They probably didn't mean it. Same with our bosses. We let them off the hook. Withholding feedback that could help somebody grow is cruel all the time. Now, you can't just... You have to, again, the competence includes timing. 
you know, barging into a room when your boss is a meeting with their boss and blurting out something they did that was terrible, probably a bad idea. So timing, delivery, it all matters. But not doing it is never okay. Okay. Ron, anything else you want to make sure to say before we hear about some of your favorite things? If your own honest competence, your own muscle is important to you, I would invite you to just try one, one exercise that I give my many leaders to do. University of Massachusetts research says that on average, we all lie about twice a day, give or take. Assume for a minute that, and that includes, you know, embellishing something to your boss, leaving a piece of information out to your spouse, whatever. Think about the last 10 days of your life and think about, let's say, 15 moments where you were not at your best, where you were, you were not proud of who you were. You could have been curt to a barista. You could have blown off your kids. You could have taken that slide out of a deck to ensure that you got your budget. Um, you could have overinflated an accomplishment to somebody in a presentation about what you were doing when you spoke. Pick it. Little, big, whatever. No one has to see this. But what I can guarantee you is if you look over those 15 moments over the last 10 days, you will see a pattern. The moments that bring us to our dishonesty are not random. We adopt those behaviors because we believe that they serve some need or we wouldn't do it, right? You have told yourself that these choices in these moments serve some purpose. I will engineer a certain response. I will look a certain way. I will avoid a certain pain. I will appear to be a certain way. And if you want to raise your game on honesty in order to make sure that, in fact, you are trustworthy, you have to first be honest about your dishonesty. You cannot be more true to yourself until you're more true about yourself. And so start with you. All right. Thank you, Ron. Now, could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? As my mentor once told me many, many years ago, nothing in life is irrevocable except death. Okay. And a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? At the Harvard University, they did a study on cafeteria workers, on looking to see how meaning and work happens. And they put cameras uh, both on the person to make, ordering their food and the, and the people in the kitchen making the food. And when they could both see each other, the way the food got made changed. When suddenly people in the kitchen went from just frying eggs to I'm frying eggs for them, the care and attention to detail and quality of what they were doing went dramatically up. Meaning that no matter what task you're performing, it can be meaningful. All right. I'm wondering if this has something to do with why the scrambled eggs at the Waffle House are extra delicious. Versus the buffet at Golden Corral. I could see them. They can see me. We're right there. All right. And a favorite book? David White's Crossing the Unknown Sea. Okay. And a favorite tool? Something you use to be awesome at your job? It's Outlook. I live for Outlook. And I, I now know how important it was to me because mine went down for two months. And people couldn't figure out how to use the web version. And I was a neurotic mess. Well, now I'm intrigued. Any Outlook power tips? Color code your calendar. It's a cool tool. Okay, beautiful. And a favorite habit? In the morning, when I have my coffee, I have a collection of mugs in my cabinet. Doorknobs and mugs, two collections for Ron. And so each mug sort of attaches to a person or experience in my life. And so I begin my day thinking about that person and thinking about that experience and those people. and just to sort of begin with a sense of gratitude and reminding myself that it's bigger than me, that my own story is bigger than just me. And so I begin my day thinking about somebody else. Okay. And is there a key nugget you 
share with folks? They tend to repeat it back to you, retweet it, Kindle book, highlight it. I think the honesty is a muscle is the one I people tend to sort of double take on. All right. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? Please come visit. So one of the cool things we did was I knew that when I was interviewing all those heroes, I wouldn't be able to use everything they said, but I, it was all worth it. So we videoed those interviews and we did a TV series and it's called Moments of Truth. It's a 15 episode news magazine show in a news magazine format. And you can binge watch all 15 episodes at tobehonest.net or you'll find them on Roku. At tobehonest.net, you'll also find information about the book, the research, there's a webinar there. If you want to hang out with me, come to my firm's website, navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com. We've got really cool free eBooks and videos and white papers and lots of cool blogs. And you can have us in your inbox every month and get our wisdom about, about teams and workplace and leadership and all that kind of stuff. But, and please do follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter and stay in touch. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Don't take trust for granted. Level up and say the right thing, do the right thing, and say and do the right thing for the right reason. And you will live a far more gratifying and purposeful life. All right. Ron, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you all the best and much honesty and trustworthiness. Pete, always a pleasure. I was just reading your shirt. Oh my gosh. That could be the accountability chapter. We dignify it. I love it. Yeah. Always a pleasure, my friend. Thanks for having me. I really loved Ron's distinction there between the truth and your truth. And to really put some thought and some humility into that to ensure that you are sharing as much of the truth as possible and thus growing that trust all the more. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP791. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.